We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to another episode. How are you going, Courtney? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Yeah. yeah. So this week we have a conversation with Meredith Blake, who's from the law school. Uh, and do you want to say what we talked about? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Meredith is a, an associate professor who has practiced law originally yeah. for a brief time and then went over to the UK and, and got involved in law academia and is now back here. And now she is involved with a, a number of things which kind of touch on, on the legal issues around end-of-life care planning um, and stuff like euthanasia and um, advanced health directives where you can tell your doctor ahead of time whether you want a certain treatment or not if you get really sick. And also um, supported decision-making amongst people who've maybe lost the, the mental capacity to, to make decisions, you know, if they are suffering from dementia or, or one of these sort of conditions. So we had a really interesting conversation. And there are a number of, like, controversial things that can't come up in our conversation as well because, obviously, people don't really want to talk about dying, but we kind of have to. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and that is a really interesting aspect of the discussion, but... We won't uh, labour on too long. No, we'll let so Meredith tell listen. everyone about the topic. Yeah, so listen on and enjoy the conversation. So, so welcome to the, to the episode. Thank you. <laughs> Just, uh, Thank you very much for having me and for introducing me to this small walled room. (laughs) Padded as well. There's a chance that some people listening might not know you. Um, Some will. Um, But do you want to just give a bit of a background on on who you are and what you're doing and where you've come from? Sure. So um, my name's Meredith Blake. I am a proud alumnus of UWA. where I studied an arts and a law degree back many, many years ago, and I'm not going to disclose those years. Um, <laughs> and I'm currently an associate professor in the law school uh, at UWA, um, and I um, am responsible for a, a number of um, activities. So I currently am director of international partnerships and exchange, and that's a leadership position that I, um, following on from my position as a, a deputy head of school, responsible for, I suppose, student pastoral care and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I also coordinate um, criminal law, mm-hmm. which is a first year unit in the Juris Doctor degree. I coordinate a uh, unit called Birth, Life, Death in the Law, which is an undergraduate unit in the Law and Society major and which gives me pretty much free reign to (laughs) pick and choose a lot of interesting topics for the undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. And I also um, teach um, with a colleague, Dr Marco Rizzi, in Health Law and Policy, which is an option unit in the JD, and I'm about to embark on coordinating a new unit which is called Advanced um, criminal law and procedure. Okay. So there's a number of units that I coordinate and teach into. I'm also a researcher, mm-hmm. and um, I suppose today is primarily um, about 
the things that I'm researching. Yeah. And so my research for many years now has revolved around uh, health law, um, medical ethics. Mm -hmm. So I do have a master's degree in, in medical ethics. And um, I suppose the criminal law, health law interface. Um, so that's really where my research interest lies. Um, increasingly, it's becoming focused on regulation. So okay. the, the way that we regulate um, health in our society. Mm -hmm. um, and another part of our responsibilities um, as academics is to engage with the community um, and with industry. And I put uh, a pretty high priority on that because I'm very interested in my research having impact. Yep. That is that it is translated from what I'm doing into actual effects that can be felt, yep. beneficial effects that can be felt in the okay. community. Yeah, and what was the thing that kind of drew you to law and then health law after that? Well, you're going back a long time yep. now <laughs> when I embarked on law. I, I, I suppose I did law because I was able to do it. Yep. Back in the day, you had to do an undergraduate year first in another discipline and then you applied. So um, I suppose there was a bit of parental persuasion. It sounded <laughs> like a good thing. Yep. And I, I think that um, while I practised law, um, at the um, Crown Law Department for a couple of years, I really um, became passionate about health law and ethics when I went to the UK. So I uh, always knew that I wanted to study um, overseas. My mother's Welsh, so I had the benefit of being able to work and live in the UK mm -hmm. um, indefinitely. So I took that opportunity and um, went over to do a Master's in Law at King's College London and at King's College London, there is a wonderful centre of medical law and ethics, which is um, one of the leading centres in the world. And I really quite quickly got drawn to that mm. and ended up doing uh, an MA in medical law and ethics at King's College and, and indeed engaging with the centre and doing some teaching there and so forth. So that was really, um, really where my passion for that started. Oh, very good. Yeah. So when you mentioned that you practised, was that in criminal law? Or? Well, the Crown Law Department is uh, now is has split into the DPP and the Crown Solicitor's Office. So it's really um, representing the government on issues relating to um, public law, but um, also, yes, a significant um, aspect of what I did anyway was mm -hmm. in criminal law. So, and that yeah. was at a state or Commonwealth level? That's a state level, yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's now yeah. the state solicitor's office. That's DPP, correct, yeah. and the state DPP as opposed to the Commonwealth yeah. DPP. Sorry, what's the DPP? A Director of Public Prosecutions. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. shouldn't no, you no, know, no, we no. live in a world of anachronisms, <laughs> so they can't afford so, your time. Yeah. yeah, so when Courtney inevitably falls foul of the law, it's That's the DPP right. that will be <laughs> That will be, oh, yeah, right, yeah working out what they're going to charge her with, yes, exactly. Yeah, so there's a lot. There, you're involved in a lot of things. You obviously have a lot of policy interests and, yeah. and the way that the law interacts with um, medicine and people's lives and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you've been really heavily involved in is advanced care planning. Yeah. Um, I suppose um, looking back to where that interest um, began, I one of the areas that I first wrote about when I was over in the UK, and I was there for, for nine to ten years, um, studying and then teaching, it's where my career as an academic began, was there was some really interesting stuff happening 
there at the time. One of those, uh, one of the, the really interesting developments was the UK um, bringing in its own human rights legislation. So it brought into domestic law the European Convention on Human Rights. And when that was brought in, there were a really uh, a range of interesting issues that, that were brought before the courts based on uh, an individual's or in a group's claim that their, they were, their rights were being violated. And um, one of the cases that came to my attention was a, a woman with um, motor neuron disease who was uh, challenging her, um, her position, which was that she could not get aid in uh, carrying out suicide. Mm-hmm. So she, this is a dreadful um, neurodegenerative disease, as you're probably aware, and she basically said, I want the right to be able to control the timing and manner of my own death so that I am not going to experience what I foresee to be an, an awful death. And so I, uh, her claim went all the way through the uh, UK courts and then she eventually went to the European Court of Human Rights. And... Um, that was a really interesting case and it came on the back of um, or shortly after a couple of cases that were heard in the United States uh, which involved a, a group of patients and their physicians who were challenging for a, essentially a, a constitutional issue there under the Bill of Rights, essentially claiming that their rights to due process under the Bill of Rights were interfered with by the state's ban on assisting suicide. So it made for a really interesting comparison between the European human rights kind of narrative and that in the US. And that was actually um, the subject of my first major article, which I still think is is the best thing I've done, which is, which is kind of sad, really. But um, that's where the interest began. And so it was really around end-of-life decision-making. Okay. And... And obviously, end-of-life decision-making does also bring up the spectre of the, the criminal law. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting area to explore. Yeah. And from there, um, when I came to Australia, uh, and particularly when I moved to UWA in 2009, um, we were looking at changes in our own guardianship legislation and, and criminal law to facilitate end-of-life planning. And... Um, that seemed to be a natural fit for me. And um, we gave, um, myself and my colleagues, uh, gave a number of presentations to, to healthcare professionals, to fellow lawyers around these changes and, and how they worked. And um, I was asked to give a public lecture um, here at UWA through the Advanced Institute of Studies, I mm-hmm. think it's called or something along those lines yep. at the time. And what happened with, it, with that was that it was recorded and one of the people who uh, in the Albany Clin- Rural Clinical Centre heard my lecture and got in contact and his name's Dr Craig Sinclair and he and I set up uh, a, a discussion and we, uh, he's a psychologist and that began a really good research partnership around advanced care planning, which he as a psychologist sitting in a rural clinical school in Albany had a real interest in. And that produced some collaborations and eventually ended up with us 
successfully putting in a grant. Um, he was the chief investigator and, and a big team of people mm -hmm. uh, that attracted National Health and Medical Research Council funding, looking into um, people living with dementia and what we call supported decision-making around advanced care planning. And it was challenging, I suppose, the, um, that, that bright line in the law which essentially says you either have capacity to make a decision or you, not, you don't. And if you don't, um, then somebody else will be making it for you. So it's a real binary mm -hmm. um, narrative and supported decision-making challenges that. And it is um, set against the um, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which mm -hmm. essentially says that states who are signatories to this convention are required to introduce supported decision-making. So our whole project was based around the convention and then how do we help um, carers, people living with dementia, healthcare professionals, um, all the advocates, how do we help them to understand what supported decision-making looks like for a person living with dementia? Because mm -hmm. supported decision-making looks quite different if you're talking about a person who has an intellectual disability mm -hmm. or a person who has an acquired brain injury. So we were really interested in looking at that. And obviously it's, it's, it's a very um, um, topical and I think enduring issue because dementia is now the second um, highest uh, cause of death of Australians. Okay. So, you know, we all know we're living in an ageing population and um, with that in mind comes, you know, increasing rates of dementia and I think that our research was hoping to um, introduce guides, um, make recommendations for reform so that people living with dementia have their voice heard and they're supported mm -hmm. to make decisions which reflect their own preferences. And are these decision-making procedures, is that purely just for end-of-life care or is this general life decisions that they have? No, no, yeah, you're right. Our focus was on lifestyle decisions yeah. as well. So it's that broader, where do you want to live, um, who do you want to socialise mm -hmm. with, um, and, and also um, facilitating what do you want to happen, you know, towards the end of the progression of this, this syndrome. So um, it covered a range of those issues. It did not focus on financial decisions, which is governed by a, a different regime, mm -hmm. all under the Guardianship and Administration Act, but governed by a different regime within that. Okay. So mm. this is sort of how people live. How people live and ho hoping that, that if we have an understanding of of how to support, how to best support people living with dementia, then um, they can live better lives. Yeah. The dementia is an umbrella term, isn't it? Because it actually encompasses quite a few different illnesses. It does. It yeah. does. Most people would be aware of Alzheimer's disease, um, but there are a, a number of diseases, Lewy body syndrome, for example. These diseases... Um, fall under um, the umbrella of dementia, which we is a syndrome, mm -hmm. okay, which is, which is um, terminal cognitive decline. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, and so 
How does that in, um, interact with things like acquired brain injuries and things which might have similar symptoms in terms of people's ability to make decisions? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on acquired brain <laughs> injuries, but, okay. but I think the, th the difference is, is that acquired brain injury is a result of a sudden trauma. Um, and the, the difference here is, and this is something that really we had to pick apart and unpack, was dementia is usually a gradual progression, mm -hmm. um, decline of cognitive function. So there are, if, a, if somebody's living with dementia, they are, you know, at, at the outset of a diagnosis, they may have the, very well have the capacity to make all the decisions that they need to. But as the disease progresses, their capacity to make certain decisions will, um, will not exist or be eroded, I suppose is the sure. best word. And, yes. um, and so what, what our research looked at was that spectrum and, in fact, looking at what a person supporting a person living with dementia at this stage of the spectrum um, is um, could be um, advised to to do, whereas how that would look further down the spectrum is different, mm -hmm. and it also means that different people would be involved in different ways in supporting the person living with dementia. Um, and really, the most interesting insights for our project came with the uh, our interviews with. Um, people who, um, not only, you know, people who were working in aged care, that seems to be an, an obvious repository of, of knowledge, um, and not just health professionals and legal professionals, but people living with dementia themselves and their carers. And that, that um, those series of interviews were very, very valuable and gave us some really rich insights, which is... Uh, uh, and the product of that is that article, Bucket of Worms, mm -hmm. you know, that I, that I, yeah. I showed you or, or distributed yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah, which we'll put a link to in our, yeah. in our show notes. So one of the things that came up in, in some of your work is uh, this is all underpinned by human rights, which you mentioned earlier. What are the main human rights issues as you see them with this issue? So I'd say it's not just human rights. I think you're, you're correct there. And, and, as you, um, and as I said, you know, my kind of passion around that came out of my time in England. But it's also the moral discourse underlying um, health care and health care decision making. So I try very hard to, when I'm talking to people in healthcare, particularly professionals, to try and I see it as my my duty really to um, help them to understand what the law is, what the law means, and what the law's purpose is. What's the purpose of legal regulation? And to help them to understand, for example, that consent is not a piece of signed paper. Consent is not a form. Consent is an ethical process of ensuring that the person understands what is about to happen to them. And if we're talking about human rights, the whole idea of consent comes down to um, 
autonomy. Uh, what you might hit, um, be familiar with the term of self-determination. And that is in human rights um, jurisprudence and indeed in the, the whole narrative around human rights is the right to respect for your private life. That's how it's expressed in the European Convention on Human Rights in Article 8. And that concept of private life isn't just about respecting confidences. It's about your right to make decisions about the way you live your life. And that has been interpreted by the European Court of Human Rights to include and the way you die. So, um, so it's a combination, I suppose, of understanding that there's an ethical um, basis to, to the concept of consent, which we, we regard as so important in the law in relation to healthcare treatment. And that ethical premise is respect for personal autonomy. And then in human rights, you see it as being a right, your right to control mm -hmm. what you do and to choose how you live your life. So that particular human right, um, which has its, I suppose, um, equivalent in the US Bill of Rights is the right to call substantive due process, it has included issues such as uh, the right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy, uh, transgender issues, um, uh, sexual um, preference issues, all those sorts of things, including um, issues around... Um, uh, end-of-life decision-making. Treatment and also lifestyle, etc. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've got a practical example of that. Um, one of my grandparents survived a stroke later in life and her, uh, I guess her quality of life was diminished quite a bit, but she survived for a few years afterwards um, but did contract an infection at some point and she'd already ahead of time discussed the fact that she wanted to refuse treatment if it came to that. She didn't want to live through that another sort of traumatic episode. Um, does that sort of play into what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah it does, um, very much so. I think one of the, the challenges with advanced care planning, um, and there are a number of ways that you can do it. I mean, in Western Australia, you can, under the guardianship uh, legislation, appoint an enduring power of guardian which is when, while you have capacity, you say, in the event that I lose capacity, I want this person to make these decisions related to my, to my health, okay? Uh, but there's also um, the ability of someone to execute, uh, while they have the capacity, an advance um, health directive. So, and that's about a specific procedure or a specific treatment. For example, a not for resuscitation order or, for example, I don't want to be subjected to artificial feeding and nutrition or I don't want to be subjected to, um, I don't want to, to be treated with antibiotics, should I? So that's about specific treatments. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't, um, you couldn't execute an advance health directive before that legislation came into effect. And that, those changes are what I spoke about before when I first became involved on my move to UWA, um, talking to, to various professionals about. Because that common law, that does acknowledge that you can make what's called an anticipatory refusal of treatment. The problem with it is, 
not, not, I won't say problem, a challenge of this is, is that we have a very, very strong respect for the sanctity of life, as we should. And therefore, where there's any uncertainty around what the person um, intended in the terms of their anticipatory refusal or the advanced health directive, the formal process that we now have, then obviously the 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 preference will be in favour of preservation of life. Yep. Because you can't at that point go to that person and get some clarification. Yep. So the, the problems with advanced health directives or the, the common law anticipatory refusals are this issue around people question, did, would he or she really want this, you know, if they were able to now make this decision? The second problem around them, and this is kind of explains the, the recognised low levels of uptake mm. of advanced care planning, is that people aren't very comfortable with confronting <laughs> their own mortality. That's yeah, so, scary. So they seem much more comfortable in confronting their future financial situation. Uh, so, you know, um, you would have heard of power of attorneys. So the, the uptake of those is considerably higher than than the uptake of advanced care planning. And either of those forms I've referred to the EPG or the Advanced Health Directive because it essentially involves you sitting down talking about, well, when I'm close to death, you know. So the sort of thing that your uh, grandmother was contemplating was, by the sounds of it, she didn't want to be intensively treated for a subsequent infection should that occur. And that would presumably involve intravenous antibiotics and um, perhaps um, assisted ventilation, those sorts of things. Now, the it's a, it's a really interesting question about things like intravenous antibiotics because there are um, palliative physicians who would say that actually people may not realise that if they do have a terminal illness and let's say their life expectancy is six months to a year and they do suffer an acute infection, that they can be given intravenous antibiotics for a short period and recover Mm -hmm. and then go on to enjoy. So Mm -hmm. it's a very um, interesting discussion to have with people in the community who obviously don't have knowledge of these you know, the specifics around the treatments. Mm-hmm. And so somebody says in their advance health directive, I don't want to be given any life-saving treatment at all. That's very difficult to, to put into practice. Yep. So, yeah. How do you get around people not exactly maybe understanding what they're agreeing with? So they could be fully competent um, and they're making these decisions Obviously, doctors and things like that, they keep up with the research. They know that there could actually be so many more benefits for going through those uh, extra treatments, but obviously general population don't know that. Like, How do you get past those kind of thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, it's about education. Um, so getting the, the message just about the existence of the ability to do this, I think, yeah. is, is mm-hmm. the first step. And then secondly, the specifics of it is to have the right person giving advice on it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's something of a, you know, 
a discussion to be had, I think, around whether it is the lawyer who's in the best position to talk you through this, as a lawyer would talk you through a power of attorney, for example. Or you need not consult a lawyer at all. I'm just talking about if you wanted to get advice. Mm. But is a lawyer the best person to talk you through an advanced health directive? Mm. Arguably not. Medi- so medical issues, medical. Uh, I, my, my my own feeling is that it's something of a, a combined team approach, yep. mm-hmm. which would be ideal. But obviously that's resource draining, and um, yep. we all know that GPs in particular are really, really. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that lawyers aren't, but GPs in particular are really, really very busy people, yeah. generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. I think that's a really crucial element of consent is the fact that people make informed decisions. So they're inform- providing informed consent, which we refer to in research all the time. Mm. But that's implied in other sections of life, isn't it, that people will be informed prior to mm. making consent? It is. Um, I mean, when we talk about the basic concept of consent to healthcare treatment, a valid consent doesn't actually require that you're given a lot of information, okay? So when you talk about the way that the legal framework operates, if your objection is that you didn't consent to the treatment, if as long as you're given information about the basic nature of the procedure that you're undergoing, the consent, as long as the other aspects of that consent, i.e. capacity and voluntariness, are satisfied, that's a valid consent. If your issue is that you weren't given enough information, that sounds in a different um, sphere of the law, Mm. in negligence, Mm -hmm. because your claim would then be that, well, you failed to give me enough information about this, and that's a breach of your duty of care. So, but I should say that when it comes to, to things like advanced health directives, and decisions about EPGs, um, decisions about whether you want to involve yourself in research, for example, then the law steps up and requires more. It requires, and it's statutorily present in the Guardianship Act, that you need to have informed consent, and that means you need to know quite a lot. Um, And indeed, when we look at the... um, voluntary assisted dying legislation that's been introduced in Western Australia, there is a whole range of issues that people who um, want to participate in that need to be informed of and understand. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. You mentioned the European law and Mm. and human rights over there, and I'm assuming that is somewhat persuasive in our domestic law. What is the position here and and how how does it compare to Europe? So what the English law and the, the position in the UK, as I've indicated, is argued against that backdrop of human rights. So, they, so the UK has domestically embedded human rights. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in Australia. So you'll be familiar that we don't have uh, a national bill of rights. Mm-hmm. Now, 
the ACT in Victoria do have their own um, bill, uh, human rights bills yeah. or legislation, yeah. but it's pretty rarely invoked. Mm-hmm. So absent that, it's difficult for a person to hang, that's the way I like to put it, you hang your argument on something. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you've got a hook, because uh-huh. so you've got a, a right sitting there. So in, in European human rights law, it's Article 8. So you hook your argument onto Article 8. So we don't really have, we don't have that capacity. All we have is what the common law says. And the common law does generate um, the, an understanding of, of human rights and principles around liberty and freedom of speech and those sorts of things. But without that clear embedded human rights framework, mm. you can't use it. So then you need to look at how else you might introduce something like the voluntary assisted dying legislation. And so um, we followed a, a model that's very similar to the Victorian model and both models are largely look at Oregon in the United States and the, there are numerous states in the US who have introduced what they call their physician-assisted dying mm-hmm. laws or physician-assisted suicide laws and they're done through the legislature. Mm-hmm. So that's how ours has worked. Ours is an act of parliament, an act of parliament that is the product of a, a, a parliamentary select committee and uh, as I indicated I don't know if I did indicate, but my uh, I gave evidence to that um, committee, a committee of the Senate, back when th- that was operating in 2018, and that then formed the pa- the basis of a um, discussion paper. There was then a very significant community consultation process, which was um, uh, carried out through a panel of experts. And from that, a bill was drafted. There was then input into that bill, and um, the act was then was then debated long and hard in, mm-hmm. in Parliament. Yeah. And there were concessions made. It, what it ended up looking like at the end was not what it looked like, particularly at the beginning. So there were compromises made, but that's the, that's the parliamentary process. Mm-hmm. So it was it was if it's a parliamentary process and it's done through a process of community consultation, that is. That is democracy, right? So yeah. it's the difference then is an individual arguing that the crime of assisting suicide is unlawful because it's a breach of that individual's human rights to get assistance in dying is a different way to, to, to frame the legal argument instead to say, well, we're going to put together a, a bill after community consultation, taking an account the political appetite for that, and the political appetite for it was strong. Um, so the, the issue for Australia has been those aren't the first times that the bills have come before um, Parliament. Indeed, I believe at the moment there's one that's about to come before Tasmanian Parliament. But but there actually is a quite a number of bills. You know, we're talking in the tens, you know, mm-hmm. of bills that have been brought before different parliaments in yeah. Australia, but they've been brought by private members. There have been private members' bills. Once you've got the backing of one of the two main political parties, 
you've got a much stronger uh, chance mm. of pushing it through. Yeah, so that political process, and I know it happened in Victoria, I think, before it happened here in WA. It did, yeah. Um, and I, originally, I think it was the Northern Territory, but I got. Quashed. Yeah, the Northern Territory um, was is a is an interesting case study. Uh, the Northern Territory was the first jurisdiction in the world to introduce um, euthanasia laws because it did go more than that, you know, assistance. So it. But it had a short lifespan of yeah. a year. And the reason why it had that short lifespan is because the Commonwealth constitutionally has much more extensive powers over the territories than it does over the states. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so the Commonwealth then introduced a law which said the territories can't make laws um, in these areas. Yeah around assisting dying, mm-hmm. and that essentially trumps and renders invalid that Northern Territory. But why did they do that? Uh, <laughs> they didn't, Political. They didn't like, like it. Like it. Yeah. Political ideology. I think it was during John Howard's time as Prime Minister. Is that, would that be right? Yeah, that sounds right. 1995, 96. Yeah, right. I don't. I, I, it's difficult to keep track of who was. Pe- yeah. <laughs> Sorry, particularly now as well. Particularly yeah. now, yeah. But yeah, it's on the Paul Kennedy. Yeah, look, yeah, there was a resistance yeah. to this idea. It was pretty novel, mm. and and three people did end their life through the the machine that Dr. Philip Nischke mm-hmm. had. You know, the suicide machine, which I understand now sits in a museum somewhere, it might be over in London, but um, it's quite an interesting um, period of history. But yeah, so, the, that's, and that, so that, that's what the Commonwealth can do because that's what the Constitution says. But the Commonwealth can't dictate to the states mm. on this issue because the Commonwealth uh, doesn't have direct powers over health and criminal law. And of course, we're seeing the upshot of all of this now in the COVID-19 pandemic, where the question of who has constitutional responsibility over borders, who has constitutional responsibility over issues of health is a very fraught question. Yeah, and it's led to really muddled health systems over the years. and funding. It has, and and I mean, while the Commonwealth doesn't have direct power over health, it has power over other things which it can can utilise to introduce laws that are effectively healthcare laws. Yep. So yep. the Commonwealth, for example, has introduced laws that around human cloning, mm-hmm. right? But it's done that through other constitutional powers, such as its power over export. Yep. So it's a, it's a very complex question. So one yeah. of the things that comes out okay. of the pandemic is there are so many interesting yeah. questions around the relationships between the states, territories and the Commonwealth coming down to our, com- our constitutional division of powers. Yeah, because aged care is notionally a Commonwealth responsibility, mm-hmm. but of course we've had all these issues between Victoria and the Commonwealth Government with COVID-19 there. Yeah. And so now they're trying to somehow distance themselves and say that Victoria is more responsible for aged care in Victoria or their decisions. Well, it, it is. It's, it's, it's shifting blame, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and I think that... And, and we saw it with the Ruby Princess as well, yeah. you know, and... Um, the aged care is, and you know that another area of interest of mine is aged um, uh, elder law, that yeah. I call it, um, and um, 
elder abuse is, is yeah, it, it's a Commonwealth responsibility. So the government-run aged care homes are um, fall within the Commonwealth's jurisdiction. Now, there are private aged care homes. They are the responsibility of the state, yeah. right? Just like our state hospitals are. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The GP is the responsibility of the uh, the Commonwealth. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's a really... And, and another thing is, of course, is that um, the states need money to run health systems. So, And they need money to pay for resources. And so there's a trade-off that happens as well in the sense that we'll, we'll transfer power to do this, but in response we'll get funding. And that's yeah. a bit like the aged care. And, and that's a whole different discussion, but in brief it's all about how taxes are collected and the fact that the federal government seems to collect the majority of our taxes, so they administer those funds. That's that's right, yeah, and I, and I'm, I had the um, dubious pleasure of <laughs> looking at uh, tax laws when I was researching the um, sugar-sweetened beverage tax issue as part of the um, obesity mm-hmm. research, and it's complicated, uh, but it's pretty apparent that, that there is a, you know, the tax power that the Commonwealth has is pretty... Um, all-encompassing. Yeah. So where I actually started with this com- <laughs> this, this uh, strand of the conversation was... Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, that's no, okay. Because we were talking about the voluntary-assisted dying laws yeah. and the fact yeah. that they've, they've, they have happened in WA, but we're not the first. In your experience of um, observing that political process, did you find that one side of politics or the other was more in favour or against this happening, or was it a, a conscience vote? It was a conscience vote, actually, yeah, as um, these issues um, tend to be, and that they, you know they are ethically contentious. It's not that you know the law can say this or this, but when it comes to the way that people think about these moral issues, mm-hmm. they differ, and that may be because of their experience, that may be because of their faith, um, it may be because of their education. So if you're if you have knowledge of secular moral philosophy like I do, I can look at it quite logically. But if you are, for example, somebody who is from the Catholic faith, you will have been um, educated differently. You know, so mm. I think that the important thing that that I thought was good about the process was I thought that it was transparent. Mm-hmm. I thought that the community consultation was was widespread. I thought it was not only wide, but I think it was deep. I think that, um, and I think that there was um, an understanding from both sides that this, while we, we may have our views around what it's permissible to do to another person in relation to the ending of their life, that the theme, and I think that was quite successfully um, sold, if you like, by the Labor government was compassion. Um, And uh, when you bring law down to empathy, people are a lot more likely to share that idea Mm -hmm. and be in favour of it. I mean, there's no question from the polls that were done that the Western Australian population was we're really quite heavily in favour of, of this change. But 
to say that they're in favour of it doesn't mean that they understand the mechanics of how it's going to work. And in fact, that's what we're working mm-hmm. through now, mm-hmm. is what, what is this going to look like? What is this scheme going to look like? How can we make it really transparent and make sure that proper processes are done and make sure that the people that are involved in administering the scheme really are comfortable with it, the reporting, all those sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. so it's one thing to say, you know, that you like that idea or you're in favour of it, you know, this cry, die with dignity. But what does that mean and how does it look? You know, how does it um, look in its, its specifics, um, breaking it down, the minutiae, yeah. Yeah. you know? So... Yeah, did you get to hear some of those community um, perspectives about these these ideas and were there any concerns within the community that maybe stand out? Yeah, I, I was invited to, um, and this was, um, you know, due to my association with Advanced Care Planning Australia. So I've got an association, obviously, with the Cancer Council, which is really what I'm working with now, but quite a long association with Advanced Care Planning Australia and there was um, an expert panel and I was invited to sit on that expert panel and the discussion was chaired by by Malcolm McCusker who was appointed as the I suppose the person to lead the um, the process of introducing the legislation overseeing I think is a better word and that was a community consultation process so it was while well, we sat up there but there were there were you know I would say over a hundred yeah, significant over 100, but groups of people from the community who were invited. So it was at a library. It was at um, Florida Library. So, you know, <laughs> anybody can come and sit around on the table and we all had to speak to different issues. And there was really a concern from around um, the ability of, of doctors and nurses who were involved in administering the scheme of being able to consciously uh, conscientiously object to that. So getting it clear that nobody's going to force you to help someone yeah. to die. So yeah. that's and that's understood in terms of abortion regulation as well. Yeah. But also around voluntariness. How do, you, how do you know that a person isn't being coerced into making yeah. a decision like this, particularly in relation to vulnerable members of our community? And they've, in the narrative, been identified as um, older people or people living with a disability and and also around um, capacity. So, you know, the idea that c- could you access voluntary assisted dying if you decided that you wanted it while you have capacity and then, you know, knowing, for example, that you've had a diagnosis of some of, of dementia, a, a disease that, you know, speaks to... And, and there's, there's a very very significant pushback against Mm -hmm. that and also to encompass diseases other than terminal illness so there's a real encountered a real resistance to to other sorts of conditions that are very debilitating but are not terminal Mm -hmm. so that terminal time frame uh, was something which I think um, wasn't initially proposed but ended up that's how the law looked I guess that would include looking at uh, conditions like depression and things like that, yeah, where there's not really a terminal 
Yeah, yeah. So there's a, people yeah. people live with really debilitating conditions, um, and depression and is 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 mm -hmm. one of them. And but there's a real pushback because of a perception, mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly, that depression is related to your capacity to make a decision. Now, the law's pretty clear on this. Mental illness does not in any way preclude you from the capacity yeah. to make a decision, mm -hmm. remembering that capacity is decision-specific, so you can be capable <laughs> of making one decision. Yeah. But, you know, somebody who's suffering from an eating disorder may have the capacity to make a decision about a r whole range of decisions, mm -hmm. but they may not have the capacity to, to make a decision about what they're eating. Yeah. So... So I think there's a real um, mm. issue there, yeah. And but and that and and we see that that in the Netherlands, where there is the most expansive laws, that people with mental illnesses are um, have been permitted access to um, the scheme that runs there. It's a, a legislative scheme, but it's underpinned by the by the common law or the court law there. Yeah. So uh, and even in the Netherlands. Um, Minors, you know, so mm -hmm. we, we, we actually have here in Australia, both in Victoria and West Australia, really very, really quite conservative models. Yep. There's a lot of, um, they're, they're limited. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and some people would say they're, they're too limited. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they are now sitting there, mm -hmm. you know. And people will, if they fit within the strict criteria, mm -hmm. be able to access and, that. And I'm sure those any changes to relax those models will be incremental anyway, right? Won't they? Well, they'll have to go through Parliament, yeah. yeah and they no doubt would be debated fiercely. Yep. I think there's a kind of attitude of, well, let's let's see what how this goes, and I, you know, and that's why there is in place reviews, you know. So what a what a piece of legislation can do where it is. Um, mm -hmm that's contentious is that they set in place a review of it and that's what they did with the um, the cloning the human cloning legislation mm -hmm. and research on embryos they actually mandated within the legislation a, a review of it and and when that committee the Lockhart committee sat down to review the way that these laws were operating they actually made a decision to um, to change them mm -hmm. um, to relax them a bit. Right. I didn't even realise we had rules about human cloning. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's mm. just not something I've ever thought about. Mm. Um, what can do you can can you briefly say what they are, just so I know? <laughs> so there is um, because of the the way that technology has developed in terms of um, human reproduction. The law's always been behind the game mm -hmm. a bit. And so, in fact, in the UK and in Australia, uh, artificial reproductive technology was happening without any legal regulation in the early days, right? And then there's, a, there's an inquiry and then we, we get legislation. So we're always a little bit behind the game when it comes to science. Um, I think the prospect, when we, when we know that we can create human clones artificially through um, a process, then that raises a, a disturbing um, issue for for people. Not mm -hmm. and and the and the issue here is, I suppose, or the understanding that people um, need to 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 know about is that there are different forms of cloning. So the people, the thing that people 
generally really don't like the idea of a reproductive cloning. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so have you heard of Dolly the sheep? Yes. Yeah. Dolly the sheep is, is an example of reproductive yeah. cloning, right? Um, but therapeutic cloning, mm. which is where you can create cells which are what we call pluripotent. That is, they can move to any part of the uh, body so that they can, for example, move, be directed into the brain and, and, and fix damaged brain tissue, or they can be directed into the pancreas and, and do that. So that's the early understanding is that embryos yeah. do that. So that if you, if you get a, a cell from a living human being who's living with some um, disease or disorder or, or physical um, disability, and then you create a, an embryo which is tissue typed um, to that cell, then that can create a store of cells and that then can be administered to the person and repair the tissue damage. Now, we, we're way off that point, yeah. right? Because it's, it's, it's very, very um, difficult to, to do. Yeah. So we haven't actually done it yet, but the change that, but that prospect of reproductive cloning was what prompted the Commonwealth Government to, what, what my uh, co-author, Dr. Sa Sonia Allen said, is a command and control approach. Right. The Commonwealth goes, right, we're taking control of this issue it's of national and international importance. We don't have direct powers to do this. We're going to find a way to legislate on this. And so then they, in, they introduced two, the Commonwealth introduced um, a research on embryos piece of legislation and a prohibition on human cloning. And what the Lockhart Committee did at the five, I think it was a five-year review, it might have been a th three-year review, did was the original legislation said no cloning at all. And then it changed it to allow therapeutic cloning. Yeah. Okay. So well, that's, that's yeah. So that that's how that mm. worked. That's mm. that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. We've been talking about end of life, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but the, but the ethical issues are they're similar. They're, yeah. they're the same. Yeah. 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 Yeah, interesting. So we're getting close to the end here. Um, we did have a, a, a list of other things that we potentially were going to discuss, but I think we've had such an in-depth discussion on <laughs> yeah. voluntary assisted dying and, and whatnot that it's probably not a bad place to, to stop. Um, just quickly, I see that you, you provided evidence to a Royal Commission into Aged Care Safety. Is that the Royal Commission that's going... No. That's a different Royal no, Commission? No, yeah, this was a state. Um, okay. Yeah, this was another Senate inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't into aged care as such. It was more into elder abuse as such. So, okay. yeah, I gave evidence with um, a number of colleagues from um, other universities. We have a, a research group called the Australian Research Network on Ageing. Uh, I'm the law and agent called ANLA. There's another an acronym. Yeah, so so that was really, and, and we covered a range of issues between the between us, including financial abuse, which obviously is really really uh, significant, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but also including um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, those those sorts of things. So yeah, we spoke we spoke gave evidence about that, but that is a separate um, inquiry. But yeah. my uh, co-researcher, Dr. Craig Sinclair, he did give evidence um, to the um, Commonwealth inquiry. Yeah, which is going to be highly politically charged when the reports mm -hmm. <laughs> come It, it will be, but yeah. yeah, particularly in light of recent events. Yeah. And um, it just, it raises, 
terribly important questions about how we treat older people in our society and um, supported decision making at the, you know, the research that I've been involved with, really at the heart of it has key ethical and human rights um, values which are around respect and dignity and, and autonomy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those values are really, really important to, to human dignity and I fear that, um, you know, what, what we're, what we're um, witnessing is, is, is that somehow older people aren't as valuable when surely the opposite is true because older people have lived long lives and have rich experiences, have wisdom. Um, And as we all know, when we're looking at this pandemic, this happened 100 years ago. Yeah. And um, we need to learn lessons. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in the Western world, we don't do a great job compared to maybe people in the Southeast Asia and whatnot of looking after their, their older family members. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting of. you say that because um, my uh, my daughter does psychology <laughs> as one of our subjects and they're talking about the values and so forth and, and the evidence apparently is that with the uptick in use of technology and with increased education, that that respect for the elders that you see in the Chinese community is eroding. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. Interesting. That's sad but interesting. And mm. yeah, I can see it being a product of technology and yeah. improvements mm. that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the other thing that we've kind of learnt from this conversation, I'm sorry about my stomach, I don't know whether <laughs> you can hear that, um, <laughs> is decision-making when you're older originally was kind of like a flip of the switch. It was like, yes, you can make decisions and then suddenly, no, you can't. And your research is about supporting, um, supportive decision-making. Yeah, so there's yeah. someone there to help them, but they're still making their own decisions because they can. And or or well, maybe the best way to say it is that the decision reflects their preferences and their values. Yeah. Um, and I think that what you uncover when you um, do research in the area of dementia is there's a lot of presumptions around that issue of capacity and the important thing really, and this is what the law clearly says, is that adults are presumed to have capacity. And if there is an argument that they're not, then that presumption has to be rebutted. So unfortunately, when you you see it with, um, you know, some cohorts of of people, I said mental illness is another one where somehow there's a presumption that they don't have capacity, whereas in fact the reality is the opposite, and we need yep. to remember that. Yeah. Mm. Well, that seems like a pretty good point to finish on. We never Very got to the. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we had so many other things <laughs> we could talk about. But it's just so interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I really think it is a big public health issue Absolutely. as a population ages more and and what. Well, that's well. it. And so this, the, the, I, I suppose the the work on dementia, which I'm still continuing with, but it's got a natural alignment with the work that I'm doing on obesity, um, because they are issues of public health yeah. and so we need to regulate them yeah. properly. And that, I uh, would love to get you back on to talk about that because that's, that's a very distinct topic and one that's equally as important and maybe applies more to 
younger people as well. Yeah, as yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So yeah, thanks very much for your time today. Yeah, no thank worries. You. Thank you for yeah. having me. That was our conversation with Associate Professor Meredith Blake. Which was so interesting. I feel like, you know, we don't cover uh, conversations about assisted suicide and, and dementia and decision-making all that often because it's not, a, it's not a glamorous science topic that people want to talk about, but it feels very important, and particularly after that conversation, I feel like it is something that a lot of us do need to consider at least having an opinion on. Mm. Um, yeah, so very, very interesting. And I think it's an issue that touches everyone, whether it's directly themselves or through a family member. You know, at, at some point, we're all going to reach the end of life. Mm-hmm. And these are all going to be relevant issues for us. And, so. we're, and we're also going to know a number of people with dementia and um, brain injuries and things like that as well. So, you know, it's, it's more common than we think, and yeah. it definitely affects a huge portion of our um, community. Yeah. And, and I think as Meredith alluded to in our conversation, as a population, we're getting older, you know, with the yeah. advances in medicine and whatnot. So people are living longer. So these, the age group that this affects is going to be, get bigger and bigger. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would love to get someone on who could talk about how or like our most important treatments and prevention strategies that we've ever made as a human society because um, it is interesting about how we've influenced uh, death and how we've made it longer and things like that. Yeah. So that'd be cool. Well, I don't know if there's anyone out there, but... <laughs> I'm sure we can find someone. Yeah. Most of the conversations that I hear about that at the moment are about the retirement age and how we can't yeah. afford to retire at 65 or 67 or whatever the official age is right now and how oh. they want to extend it to 70 or over 70. Um, but, yeah, obviously things like end-of-life decisions is another area that that's going to become more relevant as Definitely. time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how can people get in touch with us? All right. So you can uh, contact us on Twitter at health means what. So send in your ideas or uh, comments or feedback or photos or whatever you want. Tag us in means. some health related yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can also send us an email uh, to meaning of health at outlook.com. Uh, and yeah, again, feedback or things like that. Comments, people you want us to interview. Uh, please send those ideas through. We would love to hear from you all. Excellent. Thank you for that, Courtney. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll speak to you soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Craig Cumming.